So we've talked about electricity, we've talked about airway and breathing. Let's talk a little bit about the pharmacology in ACLS. Let's say you've got our 70-year-old woman that we described in the case in the V-fib arrest, and you've shocked them a few times at maximal energy levels, given a few amps of epinephrine, and they still remain in V-fib. This is sometimes called refractory V-fib. What are some of the other moves you can make to get your patient into a perfusing rhythm? So the sequencing of the drugs is pretty clear and pretty easy when you go through the guidelines. Your first agent is going to be a vasopressor, usually epinephrine, and the epinephrine is given every three to five minutes. So the second agent, right when, you know, if I have somebody in persistent V-fib after only two shocks, they're often getting an antiarrhythmic. So I won't be going through a few amps of epinephrine and end up with somebody in persistent long refractory V-fib. It's actually I'm giving an antiarrhythmic up front. And in most cases, the antiarrhythmic right now, the antiarrhythmic of choice is amiodarone. That's based on a number of studies that have shown survival to hospital admission with a pulse. Unfortunately, those studies were underpowered or maybe there wasn't a sufficient effect to detect survival to hospital discharge, but amiodarone seems to be the antiarrhythmic of choice for this patient. Okay, so let's say you've given your epinephrine, you've given your amiodarone. Is there any role for any of these patients for thrombolytics who are in persistent V-fib? So there's been a number of studies in specific types of patients in cardiac arrest, for instance, patients in PEA, and there's been studies looking at patients with all rhythms blindly given lytic, irregardless of the situation. And none of them have come up with any data to support that lytic should be given to patients in cardiac arrest in general. Having said that, I think there is a role outside of the science to consider lytic in very special circumstances. But really, I'm saying this probably more of a, an opinion than it is based on any evidence. But there are a few scenarios where we get glimpses of patients. For instance, the patient who has a V-fib arrest, they get shocked into a perfusing rhythm for a short period of time. Uh, there's enough time to get a uh, 12-lead ECG and the patient rearrests. For instance, I had a patient like that once at Sunnybrook. And I think there, when you have a documented case of ST elevation MI in a patient who was arrested, who was re-arrested and has resistant cardiac arrest, I think your options are very limited. And it seems to make intuitive sense that lytic is indicated in that patient. But when you do that, you're doing that outside any strong body of evidence to support what you're doing. But I still think there might be patients where it makes sense. And the other obvious one is where the clinical scenario paints a picture of high likelihood of pulmonary embolism causing cardiac arrest because of some sort of historical feature or other feature of the arrest. And I think when you've run out of options and you're highly suspicious of pulmonary embolism causing the arrest, I think lytic is a reasonable option to consider. In a lucky setting of the big city where we have cath labs available, some of these patients with recurrent V-fib with a really good story or a 12-lead documenting an ST elevation MI, we'll get those patients up to the cath lab. And in some instances, they re-arrest and, and you might even be doing CPR on your way to the cath lab. Those I'm not as clear about giving lytics to just because of the availability of the cath lab. The one that's discussed specifically in the guidelines that you might try is the good, good clinical story for a massive PE as the cause of the cardiac arrest. The main problem, of course, is those people arrest of a massive PE have such a large burden of clot that uh, fibrinolytics are unlikely to uh, make much difference because it just takes such a long time for a large clot to be dissolved. Mm -hmm. 
You know, the issue of uh, going to the cath lab intra-arrest is, is an interesting one. And certainly there are case reports uh, abound of patients going to the cath lab with mechanical CPR devices in place and having successful PCI and then recovering from their arrest. The challenge is getting on the phone, talking to your interventionalist and saying, I want to take this patient up to the cath lab who doesn't have a pulse. And that's where maybe uh, your skills as an advocate might come into play. There's a real issue in the States as compared to Canada where there's mandatory reporting of mortality figures from uh, cath labs. And that is a barrier probably not only for this rare type of patient where we're, we're thinking that going to the lab without a pulse might be a good idea, but more importantly for the post-cardiac arrest patient who's got their pulses back might need to go to the, the cath lab. Okay, so we've talked a bit about V-fib and persistent V-fib. Let's move on to the tachycardias. In terms of the tachycardias, I just want to put out there that really the first thing to determine is if the patient is in sinus tachycardia, secondary to something else, versus a true arrhythmia. So when you get a patient with tachycardia, first you need to determine whether the tachycardia is the primary cause of the presenting symptom or secondary to an underlying condition that is causing both the presenting symptoms and the faster heart rate. Many experts suggest that when a heart rate is 150 beats per minute, it's unlikely that symptoms of instability are caused primarily by the tachycardia unless there is impaired ventricular function. The upper rate of sinus tachycardia is age-related. So if you calculate it, it's about 220 beats per minute minus the patient's age will give you the upper limit of the rate of sinus tachycardia. And that may be useful in judging whether an apparent sinus tachycardia falls within the expected range for that patient's age. And sometimes I think the decision is difficult. It's a difficult one to make. And I'd say when in doubt, treat the arrhythmia. Treat the arrhythmia as if it's causing the instability when there, when there is doubt. Because there's going to be some, some gray areas where you have an unstable patient in front of you. The tachycardia is maybe you know, a bit higher than 150, but you're uncertain whether it's causing the instability or not. And I think if you attempt to treat the arrhythmia and take that out of the equation, then you can start dealing with other things. So in terms of the tachycardias, let's start with the stable, wide, complex, monomorphic tachycardias. Let's talk a little bit about adenosine. In the 2005 guidelines, adenosine was recommended only for suspected regular narrow complex re-entry SVT. But in the new guidelines, they say that it may be considered in the initial diagnosis of stable, undifferentiated, regular, monomorphic, wide complex tachycardia. In other words, they're recommending adenosine for those patients who actually have SVT but with aberrant conduction, which gives them a wide, complex-looking rhythm. I have a bit of trouble with this one because sometimes a patient is going so fast, they look regular when, in fact, they're irregular. And in the patient who, say, has rapid AFib with WPW, then giving them adenosine could block the AV node and send them into a V-fib arrest. What's your take on this recommendation for adenosine in the stable, undifferentiated, regular, monomorphic, wide complex tachycardia? Well, let's look at how the guidelines are written. Okay, first they say that you're going to assess the stability of the patient. And then one of the key parts of all the stable tachycardia algorithms is consider expert consultation. And so when you find yourself in that gray area, 
where your comfort level may not be that great uh, or your experience or your ability to interpret the rhythm may not be that great, you have a stable patient. I would make sure that you got someone involved in the care who was that expert of whatever level, someone who's comfortable with dealing with that arrhythmia. Having said that, I understand what the rationale is for using adenosine, that a small portion of these uh, monomorphic wide complex tachycardias, a small proportion are SVTs with aberrant conduction, a large, large proportion are VTAC. If it's the former, then, then a dose of adenosine and you'll convert the rhythm. If it's VTAC and a, a dose of adenosine will do virtually nothing, although there are some cases of conversion. And if you're careful, you won't be giving adenosine to those cases where you misdiagnosed the rhythm. I understand why people are a little bit hesitant about this one, and probably rightly so. For forever, we've been teaching residents and medical students about never giving adenosine in a scenario which could possibly be Wolf Parkinson White with aberrant conduction of AFib. And that's sort of been a standard teaching in ACLS for a long time. And then this one retrospective study of about 200 patients, and apparently 81 of them ended up having VT as the final diagnosis comes out, demonstrating usefulness and safety, and the guidelines sort of all of a sudden change. So I can understand where the skepticism comes from, and, and I agree, caution is advised. But at the same time, what we're looking for to avoid here is that really ugly, polymorphic, obviously irregular atrial fibrillation that is usually quite obvious in Wolf-Parkinson-White going down the accessory pathway. And really those are the ones that we will kill with that treatment. And I think that we have to be cautious that we are ensuring that regular is regular and monomorphic is monomorphic. Because what we're really trying to avoid is blocking the AV node in the situation where you are getting some transmission of the atrial fibrillation down through the accessory pathway into the ventricle. And that's usually pretty obvious in a wide, ugly, polymorphic, irregular rhythm. I've seen the needle and the damage done A little part of it in everyone So let's talk a little bit about amiodarone. After the 2000 guidelines came out, everyone was using amiodarone like it was water for every arrhythmia under the sun just about. Over the past 10 years, there have been a few papers that have shown that amio actually may not be as great as we thought it was and that it has potential major long-term side effects for those who end up on it chronically, for example. I've seen lots of patients with pulmonary fibrosis. They can get uh, thyroid abnormalities. And in the acute situation, it can be dangerous when used with certain arrhythmias. While amiodarone is definitely the go-to drug for persistent V-fib, like we were just talking about, how good is it for stable VTAC, and in which arrhythmias should we not be using amiodarone for? Well, a couple of things about amiodarone. Acutely, I don't worry about the pulmonary fibrosis or the hypothyroidism. Acutely, I worry about the fact that the diluent causes hypotension, and that, yeah, in my experience, I tend to agree, but I find that other drugs like procainamide do a better job of uh, chemical cardioversion of the patient. The evidence for each individual agent on their own is not great for the, the percent of patients with stable VTAC that they convert with the use of any single drug, and amiodarone included. 
but having said that, as far as amiodarone versus procainamide versus other choices, there haven't really been any head-to-head comparisons of these drugs in stable monomorphic ventricular tachycardia. So we're really left with expert consensus. We're left with local availability of drugs, local practice patterns, and individual practitioners' comfort level with using one drug versus the other. Mm -hmm. One thing that persists in these guidelines is once you've tried one antiarrhythmic, you're essentially done with antiarrhythmics. That is, you can't mix or combine or use multiple antiarrhythmics on a patient, often because you can precipitate refractory bradycardia, hypotension, or sometimes other malignant arrhythmias. So that's a good point is that if you're not successful with one, you're not going to automatically be trying another. So in terms of your go-to drug for stable VTAC, uh, Dr. Feldman... I vote for procainamide. You vote for procainamide, Dr. Brooks? I'll balance that out with a vote for amiodarone. Okay, so... Simply, you know what? It's simply, though, it, I'm not basing my decision on, on evidence. I'm basing my decision on the number of times I've used amiodarone versus procainamide, to be totally honest. I see. Okay. So there are some small studies that have shown that amiodarone isn't that great in VTAC. You know, it's somewhere in, in the area of about 30% of patients will convert who are in stable VTAC with amiodarone. So I guess suffice to say that amiodarone is one of the available choices. Procainamide is another available choice for stable VTAC. For amiodarone, though, don't expect a conversion rate of much over 30%. And the second part of the question there is, in what situations should we not be using amiodarone? So getting away from stable VTAC, what kind of arrhythmias should we really avoid amiodarone in? Well, amiodarone certainly has a number of different effects. It's a multi-channel blockade that it causes, but certainly AV nodal depression is one of them. So in the situation that we just got over talking about, the, uh, the issue with atrial fibrillation in the context of an accessory pathway, certainly contraindicated in those patients, contraindicated in pregnancy, I believe, as well, and also any patients with uh, prolonged QT, because it's known to prolong QT segment as well. So torsade de point is definitely uh, something you don't want to reach for the MEO. Okay. And for the American listeners, that's torsade de point. <laughs> I have no French-Canadian blood in me. That just that just came out. And I met a woman from here, a French-Canadian woman, my fiance, Sophie. We're, we're going to get married very soon. And I got to tell you, now I'm trying to learn French, right? French is a very difficult language. They drop all the letters at the end. Like, for instance, her name is spelled P-E-R-R-E-A-U-L-T-E-A-U-X. It's pronounced... Before we get away completely from stable VTAC, so the guidelines say your choices are amiodarone, procainamide, or sotalol. Amiodarone's conversion rate from the small studies that we do have is about 30%. Procainamide has quite a bit higher of a conversion rate if you look at the numbers, somewhere up around 80%. Although with procainamide, you really need to watch out for hypotension is the main thing with procainamide. And QT prolongation. And, and QT prolongation, as you do with amiodarone. Before we leave stable VTAC, 
I just want our listener, listeners to always be on the lookout for accelerated ideoventricular rhythm, which is not VTAC. It looks like VTAC, except that the rate is usually between about 60 and 110. And when you see something that looks like VTAC, that's a rate between 60 and 110 in the post-MI patient, that's a good sign. That's a sign that they're reperfusing their coronary arteries. And in that situation, you definitely do not want to be giving anything. You just want to put your hands behind your back and let them reperfuse. If you give them an antiarrhythmic in that setting, then you can cause asystole. So talking about asystole, let's move on from VTAC to PEA and asystole. In the new guidelines, atropine has been taken out of the PEA and asystole algorithm. Why has it been removed from the algorithm, and are there any situations in which you would still consider using atropine? So this is, I think, it's a really fascinating issue because I think everybody was kind of surprised. This is, you know, atropine was one of their tools they had in this in this group of patients who have PA and acystole, and it was one of the only things we could actually do for these people. The fact that, that atropine has been pulled is really not a reflection of any new earth-shattering evidence or, or research showing that that dismisses the effectiveness of atropine, but really kind of a realization and a reflection by the Elcor community that there was never really any evidence for it in the first place. And it kind of got grandfathered in. The reaction was a lot of people are saying, well, what's the harm? Like these people are done anyway. And if there's even a hint of a possibility of, of a benefit, why aren't we just doing it? And really that's sort of a slippery slope because then we could say, well, why don't we push lytic for everybody? There's a cost associated with that. Why don't we give everybody glucose mixture? Why don't we give everybody apple juice? And there's only a limited number of things that we can do in a rest. It's really important to focus on the things that do make a difference. And it's also important to encourage research into novel therapies and not focus on old dead therapies that don't make any difference. So prior to 2005, they had transcutaneous pacing as an option for asystole, but since then it's been out of the guidelines. Is there any role left for transcutaneous pacing or that's also the, sh the door has been shut on transcutaneous pacing for asystole? They've shut the door on these things, whether it's precordial thump or pacing or atropine, not necessarily because there's harm caused by the intervention, but because, as Dr. Brooks said, there's a cost associated and there's a potential for delaying when you don't have focus on the things that you should be focusing on. When a patient is in asystole, there's a reason for that. I like to think of things in terms of the physiology of the heart. Normally, you have a negative resting membrane potential that slowly goes upwards, and when it reaches a threshold, the heart fires, and you get a blip on the ECG, and you get a heartbeat. When the person is in asystole, there's some reason that you're not able to even do that minimal electrical activity. You should be focusing on those re potentially reversible causes and trying to shoot electricity through this heart that can't even do anything on its own because it's too depleted and unstable to even you know, make any kind of rhythm. You're just wasting time. I agree with what you say. And I think that there are some circumstances where to me it makes sense that I would try it even now that the guidelines have sort of told us that's not indicated and what I'm speaking about is the rare patient where they have an unstable bradycardia with a pulse which degenerates in front of your eyes on a monitor to asystole and I think that I would have a hard time not putting a pacer on in that circumstance but that's one of those 
clinical scenarios that don't really fit into the nice clean boxes of guidelines and that's where you have to use your clinical judgment in stepping outside of the guidelines. Let's say you have a patient who's had a cardiac arrest and has been defibrillated twice for V-fib. After the second shock, you resume chest compression, start an IV, and prepare an amp of epi. During a pause for ventilations, you notice an organized rhythm on the monitor. At this point, the ACLS guidelines would recommend to continue CPR and give the bolus of epinephrine blindly without checking a pulse. But a lot of ED docs will hold the epinephrine until a pulse check confirms no pulse before they know that giving a patient with a pulse a milligram of epinephrine could cause significant cardiac instability. The guidelines do not recommend withholding the bolus dose of vasopressor even when an organized rhythm is seen on the ECG monitor or physiologic monitoring of end tidal carbon dioxide, arterial pressure, or central venous oxygenation saturation suggests a return of spontaneous circulation. So the question here is, should a rhythm check precede drug administration during cardiac arrest? Should we be doing that, or should we be giving these so-called blind doses of epinephrine? So, Dr. Brooks, you were closer to the writing process than I was, evaluating the evidence and so on. And even if you didn't look particularly at this specific drug in this specific instance, I think that, that people who were writing the guidelines were aware of how they might be interpreted. And they were aware that if they wrote it a particular way, for example, to, to give epinephrine, even though there might have been return of an organized rhythm because you haven't looked, they were aware that there's a chance that that might happen. Yet the evidence in the studies showed that when it was done this way, survival improved or outcomes improved. So I, I don't think the writers were unaware that this might happen. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of, in both the 2005 and the 2010 guidelines, this very issue was debated heatedly. And my sense of it is that it really came down to, you have to choose between teaching the masses of all healthcare providers everywhere about the single most important thing being that uninterrupted chest compressions are key. And that is supported by a significant amount of evidence. And if you incorporate in your guidelines that go out to all types of health care providers around the world, if you incorporate another rhythm check or, or worse, pulse check, you're really going back to the way we performed CPR prior to the 2005 guidelines. And you're incorporating pauses, which we know last 10, 20, 30 seconds for people to assess rhythm and pulse. And so we had to balance the issue of minimizing interruptions and the bulk of evidence that supports that that is very harmful against administering epinephrine, one milligram bolus of IV epinephrine to a patient who has just very recently come out of cardiac arrest. And the concern that people have about giving bolus vasopressors is certainly a valid, a valid concern, but everybody is assuming that a milligram of epinephrine IV in a, in a very recent post-stress patient is harmful. So I, I'm going to jump in there actually. And when I was first becoming an ACLS instructor, I wanted to answer that very question. And I went and looked at the literature to see what harm is caused by a bolus injection of epinephrine. And my conclusion is that it's sufficiently rare that uh, there were only a few case reports of it 
And uh, if I ever kill somebody with a bolus of epi, I'm going to get my name published as well. <laughs> yeah, so the point is is that I don't think we, we know for sure that a milligram of epinephrine in a very recently arrested patient with a, with a new return of spontaneous circulation is harmful. There just isn't that evidence there. Sure, it sounds bad, and it certainly would cause tachycardia and vasoconstriction and maybe some coronary vasospasm in somebody who's awake and not just recently arrested. But the post-arrest heart and the post-arrest hemodynamics are very different than somebody who's got a spontaneous pulse and who hasn't, hasn't just arrested. There's some myocardial stunning going on. There's changes in vasomotor tone. And so we can't assume that a milligram of epinephrine in a patient who's recently got their pulse back is, is harmful. So Dr. Brooks, I'd summarize it, and I do this with ACLS students. It's a risk-benefit thing. The excess risk by introducing additional rhythm checks and pulse checks far, far outweighs the small risk that may occur in rare instances by giving epinephrine without checking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think maybe the answer to this in the future, because it, it's a valid concern, but I think maybe the future with see-through CPR and hands-on CPR without pauses for ventilations, for rhythm checks and otherwise, and with more experience using end-tidal CO2 to detect uh, return of spontaneous circulation, we may be able to balance these two issues a little bit better. We may be able to continue chest compressions without interruption and at the same time be able to diagnose and, and observe ROSC without stopping. And at that point, it might be easier to incorporate drugs and chest compressions without compromising forward flow. And for those of you who aren't on the, on the uh, acronym list for all the uh, cardiac arrest stuff that Dr. Brooks is, re- return of spontaneous circulation is ROSC. Quietly you say to me, time has come for you. There doesn't seem to be much to reach for when we have an asystolic patient since there's little evidence that really anything works. Many docs will reach for bicarb because they figure the patient is so severely acidotic by the time they get to them. When, if ever, should we be using bicarb in the cardiac arrest patient? There are certain conditions where certainly recommended, and that would be certainly patients with known or when there's a high clinical suspicion of hyperkalemia when there is a clinical scenario of TCA overdose, and perhaps in patients where there is a documented pre-existing metabolic acidosis as the cause for arrest. But blind administration of bicarb, although it may make intuitive sense that after prolonged arrest, you could imagine that there's going to be quite a significant acidosis, and a lot of people worry about the effect of acidosis on inotropy and the ability to get return of spontaneous circulation back. But in fact, we know that bicarb can cause uh, paradoxical intracellular acidosis and a number of other bad effects. And there's absolutely no evidence that giving bicarb, even for prolonged arrest, has any benefit on shorter long-term outcomes. So we've talked about V-fibrest. We've talked about the, some of the tachycardias. Let's move on to bradycardias. The new guidelines state that if bradycardia produces signs and symptoms of instability, the initial treatment is atropine, and if they don't respond to atropine, then the next step would be IV dopamine or epinephrine drip, which can be considered as an alternative to transthoracic pacing. 
which was step two in the previous guidelines. The idea of transthoracic pacing or an IV dopamine or epinephrine drip is a bridge to transvenous pacing, which is more of a definitive therapy for bradycardia. Can you review for us the reasoning behind the current treatment of bradycardia and how it might change depending on what type of bradycardia it is? So the way I read the guidelines, it it seemed pretty clear, actually, what to do at the beginning, at the end of the bradycardia algorithm. And the stuff in between was less clear, partly because I think the evidence was less clear. If you have a bradycardia and the patient has serious signs or symptoms, uh, signs of poor perfusion or shock or they're unstable, they need to have a transvenous pacer placed. What you do in between is a little bit less clear, and that's because the evidence is a little bit less clear. You can try atropine. If you have high degrees of AB, AV block, like a second-degree type 2 or a third-degree AV block, it's unlikely to work, but it's unlikely to harm the patient. Perhaps in the setting of a transplant patient, they mention that rarely uh, you can get a paradoxical worsening, but that's a sufficiently rare clinical scenario at most hospitals, with a few exceptions. Uh, but you can try it. If that doesn't work, you can move on to a dopamine or epinephrine infusion, or you can move on to transcutaneous pacing. The main problem with transcutaneous pacing is that uh, you have to turn it up to very high current levels, and even then it may be ineffective, and you end up having to sedate the patient, which that in itself can be associated with some risk, or you can try a dopamine infusion. This comes from studies that basically showed that there was not much difference between transcutaneous pacing and dopamine. So that's why the beginning is pretty clear, assess for stability, the end is pretty clear, that you're trying to maintain them long enough to get a transvenous pacer, and in the middle there are a few things you can try, and they didn't actually rank them uh, in terms of hierarchy. So in those cases, I think other other considerations might come into play, like like what's available and easiest to set up and what do you have most experience and clinical comfort with. So in terms of when we should use atropine with caution, one is in ischemia you just mentioned. Uh, the other one is that in transplant patients you mentioned as well, it doesn't work. And lastly, like we've been saying, it's unlikely to work in patients with type 2 second degree or third degree block. So that's about atropine. If you do decide to give a dopamine or epinephrine drip, what dosages does the guidelines recommend for dopamine and epinephrine infusion for symptomatic bradycardia when atropine has failed? So a reasonable starting dose for dopamine would be 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And a reasonable starting uh, rate for epinephrine would be 2 to 10 micrograms per minute. And of course, with each, you're titrating to patient response. That sort of microgram per minute or microgram per kilogram per minute is somewhat institutional. And some places use per kilogram, some places don't. So just be aware wherever you work just to uh, understand the dosing units used locally. So let's move on from the bradycardias to the narrow complex tachycardias. The guidelines recommend trying a vagal maneuver for PSVT which will terminate up to 25% of them. And for other SVTs, that the vagal maneuvers might transiently slow the ventricular rate and potentially assist rhythm diagnosis. How does adenosine compare to calcium channel blockers in converting PSVT? Adenosine has a similar conversion rate to calcium channel blockers, but because of its short half-life and its transient effects, it's less likely to have adverse effects other than the obvious sort of facial flushing and some chest discomfort. Okay, so that's why adenosine is, is the first drug to go to for PSVTs. 
In what situations is adenosine contraindicated, and in what situations should we reduce the dose? It's contraindicated in asthma, and it states that in the guidelines, but when you look into why it's contraindicated in asthma, the, the evidence for that absolute contraindication is actually weak. And if you read about it in other sources beyond the guidelines, that most places would say that's a relative contraindication. And it comes from a few studies where uh, asthma patients were given adenosine to inhale, and a few of them had some bronchospasm. And there's been a couple retrospective reviews of asthma patients who got IV adenosine. And for instance, one of them of, of 89 patients had only two had a sensation of dyspnea with no serious adverse effects. It's also contraindicated in wide complex irregular or uh, polymorphic tachycardia. And we've already discussed that. Really, that's the issue with uh, potential AFib with both Parkinson-White, which if you block the AV node, could deteriorate into um, VF, which is very difficult to treat. You should also be aware that in post-cardiac transplant patients, those taking dipyridamol or carbamazepine, the dose should be reduced to about 3 milligrams. Also, uh, dose reduction is indicated uh, when you're giving it via a central vein. Okay, we've talked a little bit about atrial fibrillation. Has anything changed in the management of atrial fibrillation in general with the new guidelines? The priorities are the same. You still assess stability. You want to decide whether you need to control the rate and anticoagulate or whether you need to cardiovert, depending on the duration of, of the atrial fibrillation. The energy levels have changed a little bit for atrial fibrillation. The biphasic energy dose has increased slightly to the 120 to 200 joule range. From a practical point of view, I have to say for a lot of the tachycardias, I use 100 joules as my starting energy because it's pretty common between, between a lot of the tachycardias. But those are the main changes, is just with the starting energy. The drugs remain the same. Uh, the management overall remains the same. Okay. So in the 2005 guidelines, the biphasic energy dose was between 100 and 120. And in the new guidelines, they're recommending the starting dose for AFib between 120 and 200. So that's about all we're going to say about dysrhythmias for now. Remember that while we're treating the dysrhythmias, we should be working towards diagnosing and treating the underlying cause, which we've mentioned a bit about. The underlying cause can usually be found in the H's and the T's. So just for review, the H's are hypovolemia, which is treated with fluids and pressors, hypoxia, which is treated with oxygen and ventilation, hydrogen ions or acidosis treated with bicarb in the case of, as we mentioned, a TCA overdose or pre-existing metabolic acidosis, for example hyper or hypokalemia, where hypokalemia will be treated with potassium and hyperkalemia will be treated with calcium, insulin, and glucose. And the last H is hypothermia, which is treated by rewarming. The T's are tension pneumothorax treated by needle decompression, tamponade treated by pericardiosynthesis, toxins treated with antidotes and gastric decontamination, for example, pulmonary thrombosis, there's that T in there, treated with thrombolysis in the cardiac arrest patient, and cardiac thrombosis, which is treated with PCI or thrombolysis and aspirin and heparin and all the usual things. I'm on the lookout I'm on the lookout mm-hmm. 
The fifth link in the chain of survival is integrated post-cardiac arrest care. And this is something that's been a really big change from previous guidelines that everyone is really excited about and that may make a huge difference to the outcome of our patients. Let's start off with the case. A 39-year-old woman who was at a party had a witness cardiac arrest. Bystander CPR was started immediately, but no AED was available. When EMS arrived on scene, they found the patient to be in V-fib and administered two shocks, which got the patient back into sinus rhythm with a pulse. Her 12-lead ECG showed normal sinus rhythm with occasional PVCs and no acute ST changes. She arrives in your ED a few minutes later with a blood pressure of 90 over 60 and a GCS of 6. Dr. Brooks, can you outline for us what the key elements of post-cardiac arrest care are? I have to say this is my personal bias. I, I do a lot of work in knowledge translation in this area. And I think for emergency physicians, this is a really exciting time because I really do believe that this is something that we should become experts at. A lot of people view the, the fifth link, the post-arrest care as an ICU intervention. But to be honest with you, as more evidence comes out about the interventions in this realm, it's becoming more evident that sooner is better. And so really we should change the way we think about cardiac arrest as sort of getting the pulse back and then we stop and we walk away and we go see the next patient because we're happy we've done our job to really now it needs to be a continuum where the resuscitation continues beyond return of spontaneous circulation into the post-arrest phase and really our mantra is now resuscitation is just the beginning and really the major and most challenging portion of the patient's recovery towards getting out of hospital in a good neurologic status starts with the patient getting a pulse back. So when we look at the new guidelines and the new chapter really on post-arrest care, there are a few things that are highlighted. And the acute issues are things that we haven't really thought about before. And one of them is minimizing FiO2. And that's a tricky one for all of us to think about because we normally look at the monitor and see a, an O2 sat of 100% and that makes us happy. But really in this patient population now, an O2 sat on the monitor of 100% should really be flashing red and should be associated with some alarms. Because as soon as we hit an oxygen saturation of 100%, we have no idea where we are with the PaO2. The PaO2 is probably going to be super normal. Most of us in the pre-hospital setting and in the emergency room will undertake resuscitation with 100% FiO2. So it's very likely that when a patient gets a pulse back, their PaO2 is going to be super therapeutic. And we know that now that that is starting to look like a dangerous thing. And think of it like you're feeding a fire. Reperfusion injury, a lot of it has to do with the production of harmful oxygen species, free radicals. And by supplying the injured tissues with more oxygen, it, it really is like pouring gasoline on a fire. And we know that we increase free radical production with supra therapeutic oxygen levels. So one of the most urgent things in this post-cardiac arrest patient is to titrate down the FiO2. And we're aiming for a saturation of 94%. And saturations of 100% should cause concern. And we need to turn down that FiO2 until we get below 100%. There was a recent study in The Lancet in 2010 called Association Between Arterial Hyperoxia Following Resuscitation from Cardiac Arrest and In-Hospital Mortality. 
This was a study of over 3,000 patients, and it showed an 18% increase in in-hospital mortality in the hyperoxia group compared to the normoxia group. It showed that hyperoxia was an independent predictor of death and recommended, like Dr. Brooks is saying, to titrate the arterial oxygen saturation to about 94%. And on the same topic of gas exchange, we have to pay a lot more attention to carbon dioxide and we have to avoid hyperventilation and hypocarbia. And this is where the end tidal CO2 monitor for the arrest patient is, is now important for the post-arrest patient because it gives us a live beat-by-beat beat, or ventilation-by-ventilation ventilation reading of the CO2. And we have to really focus on avoiding hyperventilation and hypocarbia in the post-cardiac arrest setting because we know that's associated with cerebral vasoconstriction and decreased cerebral blood flow. And in the recently essentially brain-injured patient who's probably lost autoregulation, further vasoconstriction and uh, reduced brain perfusion is going to worsen the brain injury. And a couple of studies in humans, their observational studies, recently published, have associated hyperoxia and hypocarbia and hypotension, which I'll speak on in a minute, with worse clinical outcomes in patients post-cardiac arrest. So these are kind of new areas of focus for us. The other element that is important, obviously, is therapeutic hypothermia. And I think that we're, the word is out. You know, the last guidelines mentioned therapeutic hypothermia. We have the two randomized control studies published in the same issue of the New England Journal, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit later. But really getting patients cold in an efficient and safe way has become focus in this new chapter of post-arrest care. And then, importantly, considering patients for whether they need emergent coronary perfusion for STEMI or a high suspicion of a high-risk non-STEMI. And I think that many people wouldn't have a problem with calling their interventionalist about the patient who has obvious ST elevation in two contiguous leads on their post-arrest electrocardiogram. Where the controversy lies is in the post-arrest patient without ST elevation. And recently there's registry data that comes from Paris in what's called the ProCat registry, where in, in a few centers in Paris, it's routine that every single post-cardiac arrest patient, regardless of rhythm, regardless of ECG findings, they all go to the cath lab. And data from places like these have shown us that even in the patients without ST elevation, there seems to be about 30 to 40% of patients without ST elevation who have what looks like an acute coronary lesion that presumably caused the arrest. So the new guidelines emphasize that it may be reasonable to send patients with a high clinical suspicion of acute coronary syndrome causing their arrest up for urgent angiography and PCI if indicated by the angiogram. And so that is certainly a change from um, what we've been doing in the past. So this patient that we have here, the 39-year-old who showed no acute changes on her ECG, 
I guess you'd have to look at a little bit more detail about the situation around the arrest to make up your mind. And I guess it's just a judgment call there, whether you think it was an acute coronary syndrome that caused her arrest. That's right. And, you know, it probably has to be a judgment call that's really ingrained in your institution's protocols with who's going to go to the lab urgently. Because really, this is not a discussion that you're going to win at three o'clock in the morning with your interventional cardiologist. But it's going to be about looking for clinical features that would, in your institutional protocols, would trigger a call to the interventionalist at three o'clock in the morning. And those things might be diffuse ST depression on the ECG. They might be a very strong clinical history. So if in this story, the 39-year-old woman at the party said to her friend, I'm having crushing chest pain immediately before the collapse. If there's pulmonary edema that's not due to some other obvious non-cardiac cause. Um, any of these features that would really suggest acute coronary syndrome as a cause for the arrest should prompt at least a discussion with the interventionalist on call about going to the lab urgently. Okay, great. So just to review, the key elements of this post-cardiac arrest care are optimizing the vital organ perfusion, titrating the FiO2 to maintain an O2 sat above 94%, but we certainly don't want 100%, emergent coronary reperfusion of STEMIs or high suspicion of MI with PCI or thrombolysis and therapeutic hypothermia. Yep. And also just focusing as well, the, the carbon dioxide is something that we need to focus on, avoiding hypocarbia. And certainly what you touched upon, you know, optimizing vital organ perfusion, the ideal mean arterial pressure for patients post-arrest is not clear from data. But based on the knowledge that many of these patients have a brain injury that really knocks out their autoregulation, meaning that patients' brain perfusion is directly related to their systemic perfusion, the thought is that higher mean arterial pressures are going to be beneficial and hypotension causing decreased brain perfusion is going to be very harmful and should be avoided at all costs. So let's talk a little bit more detail about therapeutic hypothermia. What is the reasoning behind therapeutic hypothermia? How exactly does it work? Well, there are a lot of damaging metabolic processes and byproducts happening in the post-arrest brain. Essentially, there's a hypoxic ischemic insult to the brain during cardiac arrest. And upon reperfusion, there are a number of harmful products that are that are created by the cells as they get started up again. So there's really sort of a firestorm of ongoing injury that happens even after the pulse has returned. Hypothermia is thought to either slow or completely abate many of the destructive metabolic pathways and has been shown to reduce free radical production and um, reduce cerebral edema. It reduces the metabolic rate of the brain so that energy stores are, are saved. It's probably a multimodal effect, but overall we see the clinical effect as improved survival to discharge and importantly improved survival with good neurologic function. So we now know based on these two big studies that you mentioned in the New England Journal around 2002-2003 that therapeutic hypothermia in the nonverbal patient after a V-fib arrest improved survival to hospital discharge. 
What about for patients who get return of spontaneous circulation from a non-VFib arrest? Should we be inducing hypothermia in those patients? So it's a really good question. It comes up a lot. I think there's a lot of practice variation. And the problem is, is that there's no data from randomized trials on patients with non-VF rhythms. And so we're kind of left with pretty suggestive data from observational studies. So there's been several studies coming from large registries of post-arrest patients, which suggest or show an association between therapeutic hypothermia and good clinical outcomes. But there's the strength of data is not as high for this patient population with non-VF rhythms. But having said that, with the supportive observational study data and with the knowledge of what the mechanism of benefit is, the guidelines reflect that by recommending therapeutic hypothermia, even for patients when they don't have VF as their initial cardiac arrest rhythm. Okay, so it's for VFib patients, even for non-VFib patients. Are there any patients that we should not be cooling after cardiac arrest? So it seems that there is consensus that patients who have a traumatic cause of their cardiac arrest should not be cooled. And the reason for that is that therapeutic hypothermia is known to, it can induce a coagulopathy and most traumatic arrests are due to hypovolemia and bleeding. So it just doesn't make any sense to be cooling those patients. And certainly there's no evidence at all for any benefit of hypothermia in the traumatic arrest patient. Right. I guess for isolated head injury, that's a different story. In those patients, you might be considering therapeutic hypothermia, but you're talking about the multi-injured patient with a coagulopathy. Correct. And to be honest with you, I don't have the... I don't have the data at my fingertips mm -hmm. on the head injured patient who's not arrested. So I'd be talking with my neurosurgeon. There's a couple other patients <clears throat> just on that who should we not be cooling. So I just wanted to comment as well on, on severe cardiogenic shock. And really the jury is out uh, on this patient population and therapeutic hypothermia. It's certainly known that uh, therapeutic hypothermia makes the myocardium less responsive to inotropic drugs there's also some peripheral vasospasm that occurs with therapeutic hypothermia increasing afterload, which might be a, a bad thing in cardiogenic shock. So I think for now, I think it's prudent to withhold in patients who have severe vasopressor-resistant cardiogenic shock after cardiac arrest, but we may see in the future that there's some more evidence to support its cautious use in this group. And then one thing that comes up a lot is, should we be calling pregnant patients post-cardiac arrest? And certainly... In this guidelines, there's a, a new focus, a renewed chapter on cardiac arrest in the pregnant patient. And unfortunately, the jury's out here as well. The problem is that these patients were excluded from the original study, so we don't have a lot of data specifically on pregnant patients. But there are case reports of positive outcomes for pregnant mothers with, uh, after cardiac arrest and therapeutic hypothermia. And in my, in my opinion... I think we should be considering this therapy for all post-arrest patients who are pregnant, given the huge potential impact on their survival, their neurologic survival, and um, the lack of data on severe side effects for the fetus. And obviously, anytime you're going to be considering this, you should involve your obstetric service, and the fetus needs to be monitored very closely. In terms of the timing of cooling our patients, how soon should we be starting to cool our patients post-arrest? And when is it too late to start the ther therapeutic hypothermia protocol 
you know, can, can cooling wait until they're transferred to the ICU? And let's say for whatever reason that someone gets a return of spontaneous circulation after a cardiac arrest, uh, is there any time period beyond which there's no point in trying therapeutic hypothermia anymore? Yeah, and this is, uh, again, a, an area where there's conflicting data. So although it seems to make intuitive sense that the earlier you get this beneficial treatment on, the better, it seems to make sense that, you know, you're stopping the harmful processes earlier and then limiting the damage induced by those processes. The evidence isn't there to support that idea. Having said that, based on the, on the fact that it does make sense that we know this is a, is a beneficial treatment, the studies that showed us benefit, their median time to cooling was about six to eight hours. But knowing the mechanism of how it works, and we're really trying to limit an ongoing injurious metabolic process, my opinion in the lack of strong data is that we should be getting this done earlier rather than later. But the other side of that really is that I really feel that this is something that we should be taking on as emergency physicians and emergency teams, whether it be in the pre-hospital setting or in the hospital setting, because I have seen how pre-hospital providers or emergency department providers can act as a knowledge translation tool. And what I mean by that is us taking ownership of this therapy and making it part of our routine cardiac arrest care means that it's getting instituted so that when our patients are stuck in the emergency department and then later get transferred upstairs, if therapeutic hypothermia is already ongoing, then we've, we've sent a reminder signal to the people who are taking over from us. It's hard to discontinue something when we've started it. And certainly we are talking about a treatment that has a number needed to treat of six. And there are very few things that we do in medicine that have that much of a benefit in survival to good neurologic discharge. So I would argue that this is so important that we need to get this started as soon as possible to ensure that it, that patients get cold within the time frame that we know it works. If they're stuck in our emergency room for two, three, four hours, it does take a few hours to get patients cold sometimes. So if we wait until they go up to the ICU at hour four, they may not be able to achieve cooling by hour six or eight or nine or 10, where we know for sure it works. So I would advocate that we need to take ownership of this therapy and get it started in the emergency department. And in terms of your method of achieving hypothermia, what's, what's the best method to get the patients cooled to your target temperature? You know, I've heard on the one hand that simply placing ice packs in the axilla and groin and giving cooled saline IV is as good as the fancy expensive machines that cool the central circulation. And on the other hand, I've also heard that there's dangers of cooling patients externally. What do you recommend in terms of, you had mentioned that we should be cooling our patients in the emergency department as soon as possible. What do you recommend about how we should cool our post-arrest patients in the ED? I guess it's important at this point to say, unfortunately, I don't have any relationships with industry because there are literally hundreds of different types of devices and mechanisms for cooling patients that are for sale. And when it comes down to it, these companies have a hard time selling their product because there is no evidence that compares one technique against another that shows superiority. We know that Ziploc bags of ice cubes and water and chilled saline, four degrees Celsius saline, 
are very effective at inducing hypothermia. However, those are kind of labor-intensive techniques uh, that are a bit messy and hard to do properly and a lot of work for nurses, as opposed to intravascular device, which takes a little bit of work up front and some expertise as far as getting the intravascular device inserted. But then after that is hands-off and, and very easy from the nursing workload perspective. So there are certainly practical issues that may be different depending on the techniques, but one technique over the other hasn't been shown to be superior as far as outcomes go. Locally, where I work, we use cold saline boluses, and those are very effective at getting temperature down quickly. A number of studies have demonstrated feasibility and safety. That's the first thing everybody thinks about with cold saline boluses. I'm Okay, so I'm giving two liters rapid saline bolus to this patient who's recently had a cardiac arrest. Everybody worries about pulmonary edema, volume overload in these sort of cardiac patients. But in fact, there's been a number of uh, case series and observational studies demonstrating the safety of this. And in fact, the, the post-cardiac arrest patient seems to really like volume. When you get patients cold, there's actually a cold diuresis that happens. So the volume tends to be very well tolerated and the incidence of pulmonary edema is very low. So I recommend that cold saline boluses, and that's 30 cc's per kilogram, that's usually two liters in adults, rapidly under pressure bags, hopefully through two IVs at the same time, go in at the same time as you have ice bags around the axilla, groin, and neck. And this is a cheap and effective method of getting patients cold. The key thing here is that that's not enough. Patients need to be adequately sedated and sometimes be given a paralytic to allow this process to efficiently cool people because with external cooling techniques, the biggest problem is the patient shiver. It's a normal homeostatic mechanism to counteract what you're trying to do to them. It's cool them down. And they tend to have shivering until you get them to about 33.5 degrees Celsius. And after that, below that, the shivering tends not to be a problem. Shivering can be subclinical and very hard to detect. And the patients often don't look like they need sedation. They're often comatose and not very active. So practitioners don't often think to give sedation or analgesic, but you'll find that if you properly sedate and provide analgesia for these patients, that the cooling process will go much smoother. Do you have a specific recommendation of how to sedate and paralyze what, what drugs you use? So I think there are a number that are appropriate. Some of it is institutional, but midazolam and fentanyl was used in one of the randomized control studies. And I think there's a lot of familiarity with those drugs in emergency departments. So that would be my recommendation. The paralytic issue is a bit trickier, a little bit controversial. And the issue is that a lot of post-arrest patients have seizures, uh, secondary to their brain injury. And obviously you want to be able to uh, see those seizures so you can treat them aggressively to prevent further brain injury. And so uh, there's a lot of hesitation to be putting patients on uh, drips, continuous IV infusions of neuromuscular blocking agents. But uh, many patients will require at least a bolus dose of paralytic to get them, get them cold and get them through the phase of shivering down to 335 and so, for instance, in our protocol, we use rocuronium or pancuronium as a single bolus dose, and that's usually enough to get patients down below that th shivering threshold. 
In terms of prognostication of outcomes of cardiac arrest, many studies have attempted to identify comatose... Comatose? <laughs> comatose sounds like... Comatose, yeah. <laughs> I think that, that's when you smoke too much weed. Yeah, that's You're right. comatose. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> many studies have attempted to identify comatose post-cardiac arrest patients who have no prospect for meaningful neurologic recovery. And there are some good decision rules for prognostication of poor outcome. How has the widespread use of therapeutic hypothermia currently affected our ability to prognosticate our post-arrest patients? So this is a really important point. And I think the key message is that it is really impossible to accurately neuroprognosticate for the first 72 hours of patients post-cardiac arrest. And that's a really important point because in the emergency room, we really need to advocate for these patients having a fair trial of critical care and delaying neuroprognostication out of the emergency room into the ICU and 72 hours later before any reasonable neuroprognostication can be, can be performed. So I think it's really important that we realize that Hypotherapeutic hypothermia is modifying the recovery of patients post cardiac arrest, and traditional markers of poor outcome neuropro neuroprognostically, such as lack of cornea or pupillary reflexes at 24 hours, which traditionally in the past have, have been fairly good at predicting bad outcome, are no longer useful. Right. So, for, for us in the emergency room, we have to really fight a lot of pessimism. These patients look horrible. They've had a cardiac arrest, they're comatose, they're not doing anything neurologically when we see them. And it's it's easy for people to slip into a pessimistic pessimistic approach. And, you know, we can have the ability to steer family decisions around, you know, a very pessimistic prognosis that people sort of preach in the emergency room for these patients. And I think we really have to focus on delaying neuroprognostication at least 72 hours after cardiac arrest. Now, there's always that sort of gray area. I'm not talking about, you know, the 98-year-old, terribly demented, bedridden, bedsored patient who has a clear wish for DNR and no extreme measures. That's a different scenario altogether. That's really an issue of, is this patient appropriate for critical care or not? I'm talking about the patient that we've deemed is appropriate for critical care, we need to give them at least 72 hours to show us what they're going to do. Agreed. If you want to learn more about the practicalities of therapeutic hypothermia, there's an incredible website by Scott Weingart called nychypothermia.org which is dedicated to everything you need to know about therapeutic hypothermia. Okay, so moving on from therapeutic hypothermia, you touched upon a bit about the reduced FiO2 to a minimum concentration needed to get an O2 sat of 94%, and that we don't want it at 100%. Can you just give us a quick run over of what kind of vent settings we should be using in the immediate post-cardiac arrest period so that we can achieve this 94% uh, O2 sat? Sure. So you should start out with a tidal volume of about six to eight milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight. And you need to titrate your rate to achieve 
a an end tidal CO2 of about 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. And this is again where the end tidal CO2 monitoring is going to become really key. Now remember that your end tidal CO2 is going to read a little bit lower of what your arterial CO2 is going to be. And that's why we're aiming for a normal of 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. And a lot of people are going to be tempted to titrate to a normal pH. But um, to do that, you might have to really hyperventilate somebody. And we are more aware now that hyperventilation and hypocarbia is something that we really want to avoid because of cerebral ischemia. And again, the FiO2 on your vent settings, you're going to want to minimize that to achieve an arterial saturation of uh, 94%. So while we talked about the indications for PCI in the post-arrest patient, that certainly for STEMIs and for the patients who you suspect even have a non-STEMI, that PCI would be indicated, what would be the indications for thrombolysis in the post-arrest setting? So I think this is a lot less clear. The guidelines really don't touch on this issue. And I think that's a reflection of there's not a lot of data out there to guide us. And, and, and the issue is really one of bleeding risk. And we know that the induction of therapeutic hypothermia can induce a coagulopathy. And combine that with lytic, we really have no idea what the bleeding risk will increase to. And there's a sense that it's probably very high. So it's not recommended as routine therapy for patients post-arrest who have STEMI, but there may be circumstances where you're stuck in a snowstorm, can't get the patient out to PCI, where it becomes a, a real consideration. And to be honest, in that scenario, I would be talking with my cardiologist, I would be talking with my intensivist, and the three of us would have to come up with a decision around lytic or no, or therapeutic hypothermia or no. And that would be a difficult decision, but one that would have to be made. So that leads me to the question, should we be starting therapeutic hypothermia for our patients who are going for PCI? Is there any disadvantage to starting hypothermia if they're going right up to the cath lab? Should we be doing them simultaneously? Here we have some more data to guide us. And there are several small studies, but several studies all pointing the same way. Uh, showing us that therapeutic hypothermia is feasible in conjunction with primary PCI for patients post-cardiac arrest. And we know that the cooling procedure does not delay door to balloon times, for instance. And we also know that the PCI does not delay us getting to goal temperature with the therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, and we also know that the bleeding risk doesn't appear to be any higher when you combine, combine the two things together. So the answer is yes. I think that the data also shows us that there is a benefit to doing both together. So they're synergistic. There's also data coming out from non-arrest patients going to the cath lab with MI that there may be a benefit from therapeutic hypothermia in reducing infarct size. So all signs point to yes, we should be doing this simultaneously. Locally, we tend to uh, start the cold saline infusions en route up to the cath lab. The other things tend to get in the way of the cath procedure. So we just hang the cold saline, get it going in fast, let the cardiologist do their work. After the procedure, then we start with ice or other surface cooling methods once they're in the CCU.
There's been a lot of talk about developing cardiac arrest centers where you transfer your post-arrest patient to a center similar to a trauma center. You know, these centers would have post-arrest teams and 24-hour PCI and therapeutic hypothermia protocols. What's your take on developing these cardiac arrest centers? Do you think it's a good idea? It makes a lot of sense to me on paper. And there's a couple of really interesting studies looking at large administrative databases in the states of ICU admissions post-cardiac arrest. And they clearly demonstrated a trend towards the centers that see more post-cardiac arrest patients. So the centers that see more than 50 a year clearly have better outcomes for those patients than the ones who see less than 20 a year. Now, in reality, when you pull patients in one center and start talking about bypassing other hospitals and and cohorting patients in one center, there's resource issues. These are not like STEMI patients that can be repatriated very quickly. These are high maintenance patients that end up being in the ICU for a long time. So you all of a sudden have regional resource issues. In fact, we're uh, piloting, piloting a small project at Sunnybrook and St. Mike's where we're, we're not bringing anybody extra in from outside the catchment area, but we're trying to develop our standardized way of doing things and developing a center of expertise and a post-arrest consult team at a couple of hospitals in Toronto. So stay tuned and we'll see if it pans out in the data. If you have time to read the guidelines, I recommend that you do. The easiest way to get them is online. They're free online right now. They won't be for very long, so I recommend going soon. All you need to do is Google AHA Guidelines 2010, and your first hit will be the table of contents. In the last five minutes of this episode, we have some bonus material. So stay tuned for Dr. Brooks's best case ever. This month's quote of the month is from the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler. The practice of medicine is an art, not a trade. A calling, not a business. A calling in which your heart will be exercised equally with your head. Often the best part of your work will have nothing to do with the potions and powders, but with the exercise of an influence of the strong upon the weak, of the righteous upon the wicked, of the wise upon the foolish. So this being emergencymedicinecases.com, we've started a new thing that we're going to trial for a while, and that is to ask all our EMC guest experts what their best case ever was. So Dr. Brooks, let it rip. Let us know what your (laughs) your best case ever. Well, my best case ever, there's no doubt in my mind which one it is because, of course, it had to be a save. (laughs) But uh, we all carry our, our nice saves around in our pocket, and it helps us on the more challenging days. But this was uh, a shift pretty early in my career. I think it was maybe even shift number three for me as a staff. The paramedics came rolling into the acute room with a, uh, I think he was about 48 years old, and they picked him up with uh, some complaints of pretty minor-sounding chest pain. And uh, on arrival at the emergency room at the door, actually, he... He had what they described as a seizure and just sort of lost consciousness. So he was brought into the acute room and 
it was quite clear as I was sort of walking with them that the patient was unconscious, looked gray and ashen, and a quick pulse check showed us that he was pulseless. So all the usual chaos of the you know recently arrived arrest patient ensued. He's on the ambulance stretcher, so we had to get him over a backboard. Somebody started CPR. A couple of nurses started trying to get IV access. And things went very smoothly. And uh, I took on the coach role that, you know, a lot of my mentors had really drilled into me that as a code team leader, you're a coach. So I started watching the quality of the CPR, started whispering in the ear of the, the compressor to, you know, increase the depth or increase the rate or you're doing fine made sure we had a couple people lining up next in line to make a smooth transition over to avoid fatigue and get ready for that two minute switch over. But despite that, we couldn't seem to get a pulse back. He went through a few rounds. He had ventricular fibrillation as a first rhythm and we shocked him a couple times. And then I think it was on the third shock and he had received some epinephrine and amiodarone. We got a, a perfusing rhythm back with a a narrow complex rhythm and we had just enough time to snap a 12 lead ECG and there was very obvious anterior ST elevation of about four millimeters across the anterior leads and as soon as we snapped that picture he re-arrested and he went through another couple shocks and I had this ECG sitting there with ST elevation on it and I couldn't get a pulse back happened that there was a cardiology fellow in the room seeing another patient and we had a quick consultation together and decided that you know really we weren't going to be able to move him up to the lab it was we were in the middle of the late evening I think and we decided that you know we're stepping outside the evidence really but we were going to give him lytic and so we gave him a dose of lytic and we're now about I think 35 minutes into the arrest maybe a little bit longer, most of the time him receiving CPR. And we gave him lytic and another couple rounds of CPR to make sure we were circulating the drug. And he got shocked out of VFib and got a pulse back. He was comatose. We had intubated him sometime during that, during the arrest. But he, after that, was actually quite stable. We did repeated the ECG, the ST segments had come down and uh, he stabilized. We instituted hypothermia and he went up to the ICU and I went home after that shift and felt pretty good about myself but I wasn't quite sure about how his neurologic outcome was going to be. So the next morning I went and I expected to be seeing him intubated and drugged up but the hypothermia had been ended early because he actually started to wake up and I went and had breakfast with him. <laughs> the ICU had been extubated and I had some tea and he was complaining about how sore his chest was, but other than that, he was feeling pretty good. So for me, that was a lesson in persisting despite long resuscitation times in sort of looking for where you might have to sidestep the strongest recommendations. In this case, it was sort of lytic in cardiac arrest, but we had sort of a snapshot of the STEMI there and we really had no way of getting him out to the lab. And it was just a fantastic thing to go up there and see him eating an English muffin, <laughs> you know, less than 24 hours after this 40 minutes of CPR. So everybody's got to have one of those every once in a while to keep optimistic about patients with cardiac arrest. And it 
makes you push a little bit harder, I think, for the next guy. <laughs> awesome. Great case.